uh, Luke chapter 24, verse 46, reads like this. It says, Then he said to them, Thus it is written, and thus it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day, and that repentance and remission of sin should be preached in his name to all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. Then I want to look at John's gospel. John's gospel, chapter number 3, verse number 3. Here's another verse. And this is with Jesus talking to Nicodemus. It says, And Jesus answered and said to him, Most assuredly, I say to you, that unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Now I want to look at Romans 10. Romans 10, verse 13. For whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. And how then shall they call on him in whom they've not believed? And how then shall they believe in him in whom they've not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the gospel of peace, who's glad tid- who bring glad tidings of good things. Now I want to look at Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8. It says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. And then uh, Titus chapter 3, this will be our last passage, Titus chapter 3, uh, verses 4 through 7. It says, But when the kindness and the love of God our Savior toward men appeared, not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to His mercy, He saved us. Through the washing of regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us abundantly through Jesus Christ our Savior, that having been justified by His grace, we should become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. I want to. We've already prayed, but I want to pray one more time. Father, thank You for Your Word. I pray that as we look at something as simple as the good news of salvation, that you would help it to come alive to us tonight. We bless you, we praise you, and we give you all of the glory. In Jesus' name, amen. And so tonight, I said it was number six, it's actually number five. We're going to look at the very, uh, the very, one of the very foundational doctrines of the church is the salvation of man. Last week we focused on the fall of man. That was number four. But tonight we're going to look at the salvation of man. And here's how this fundamental truth reads. Man's only hope of redemption is through the shed blood of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. I want to read that one more time because it's a power statement in and of itself. Man's only hope of redemption is through the shed blood of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Of God. So tonight we're going to talk about the salvation of man. Uh, some theologians say that there is a singular theme that runs from Genesis to Revelation. And you know, and I know, if you study the Bible at all, if you've been in church, the theme of the entirety of Scripture. Now, there are, there are other themes in the Scripture, uh, you know, and there's subpoints and, and other things that we highlight. But the main theme of Scripture is redemption. From Genesis chapter 1 all the way to the end of the book of Revelation, the the scarlet thread is what the theologians call it, is the thread of redemption that runs all the way from Genesis to Revelation. We see it 
in uh, creation, in the garden. We talked about that last week at the fall of man. Uh, We see it in the sacrificial system that was set up in the Old Testament with the sacrificing of the pure animals. Um, We see it in the message of the prophets prophesying that Israel's Messiah would come and redeem her or save her. Uh, We definitely see it manifested through the life of Jesus because the Bible says the Son of Man came to seek and to save that which was lost. Uh, We certainly see it in the message that was entrusted to his disciples because they said, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Uh, We certainly see it within the framework of the church in the book of Acts. Uh, The Bible begins to talk about the importance of the church. And one of the themes throughout the book of Acts is that uh, he who calls, all who call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Okay? Then if you look at Paul's epistles, the letters that he wrote, um, it, that is a, a common thread of salvation and then also who we are in Jesus and he's, he's developing that salvation redemption but yet we see it then it culminates in the book of Revelation because it's about Jesus returning to redeem that which has been purchased by him so we, we talk a lot in the church about salvation right? salvation everybody say salvation So we use terms like this, I'm saved. We use that to communicate the state of man that has given their lives to Christ. That person who has placed their faith, their hope, their future, their eternity into the hands of a merciful Jesus who has um, basically paid the price for all sin of humanity. We would call a person who has placed their hope in Christ saved. There are other terminology that we'd use Born again, we saw that in John chapter 3. John said, uh, or Jesus said rather to Nicodemus, he said, unless you're born of the water and of the Spirit, you cannot see the kingdom of God. People said, does that mean water baptism? No. He says born again, which means born twice. Born of the water speaks of the, the, uh, the water from the mother's womb. And then the second birth is a spiritual birth. And so it's a born again experience. So it's something that, that happens to us, um, but we wrestle with this phrase "saved," and people say, "I'm saved." I use the phrase, "I'm saved." I'm saved. And people say, "Do you know Jesus?" Yes, I'm saved. The question we have to answer that stares us all in the face is, "Saved from what?" What are you saved from? I mean, you know, people are like, I'm saved. Okay, well, what are you saved from? A blind date? Are you saved from the IRS? Like, what are you saved from? No, Christians, our our message, the gospel, the redemption message of Christ was that the Son of Man came to redeem us back from the fallen state. Last week, we talked about the fall of man. Man created in God's perfect image. Sin came into the world. Transgression willfully happened at that moment. Man was separated from God, sin, sickness, spiritual death, Deuteronomy 28, everything that comes along with the curse popped up in the world because of man's transgression. So Jesus came to restore fellowship with man and God and then also to redeem man ultimately from that curse. So while we're looking at this tonight, we've got to realize we've been saved from separation from God. We've been saved 
from separation from God. So here's what you need to grasp right here. Those of you who are in this room, there was a time in your life, and maybe you're here tonight, and maybe, I know it's Wednesday night, it's Bible study, we just assume we, we live in the, the buckle of what they call the, the Bible belt, you know, so to speak, and, and it's assumed that you're saved, but maybe not. You might not be saved. You might just be religious. I mean, Jesus, one of the very first instances in the Scripture of Jesus casting the demon out of somebody was in the synagogue. You didn't know the devil comes to church, do you? You might be sitting by him. Look up here, look up here, look up here. The devil comes to church. The devil knows the Scripture. The devil is very spiritual. That's why people are like, I'm spiritual. I'm like, define yourself. Come on, because angels are spirits and demons are spirits and there's the Holy Spirit and there's unclean spirits. So define yourself. What do you mean by I'm spiritual? But when we look at this, we have been saved from eternal separation. But really, you have to go further than that. It's not just eternal separation, but really it's eternal punishment because the Bible declares that at the place of eternity, there are but two choices. Heaven and, help me somebody. All right, so that's not just a place you tell somebody to go when you're mad. Amen. You should never tell anybody to go there. I wouldn't want my worst enemy to go there. It is a real place where there is eternal torment for all of eternity. The book of Revelation describes it. Um, Jesus described it all throughout the Gospels. He said it's a place of weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth. He says the fire is never quenched. The worm never dies. And so I, I, I want you to wrestle. I'm going to use an opportunity tonight to paint an evangelistic picture for you. You and I have to understand that this hurts. It hurts. It hurts with all that is within us. It should hurt us. It should haunt us. Each and every person in this room tonight knows somebody that died and went to hell. Think about it. It's sobering. Every person in this room, not didn't say they were had to be in your immediate family or whatever, but you know somebody who died and was eternally separated from God. Now, let me take it a step further. None of us in this room were born saved. Okay? Now, when little babies die, you know, God's got that covered. That's in the Scripture. But you need to understand that humans at our default, Jesus said you must be born again. So what that means is, is that not only do each and every one of us in this room know somebody personally who died and went to hell, we were all also going there. And I can't speak for you, but I was going on a first-class ticket. Now, I'm just going to speak a word right here. If I was going to go to hell, I would hate to do it from a church pew. Seriously, think about it. I would hate to come to church my whole life and have no fun, meaning the fun of the world, if, if I was just going to die religious and lost. 
But there are people. Jesus called them the wheat and the, the, wheat and the tares, the sheep and the goats. So the Lord's going to separate all of that out. That's why I always tell people when we do go to eternity, there are going to be people in heaven you thought would never be there. And if you go to hell, there are going to be people there you thought would never be there. Amen. That's why God's the ultimate judge. But this, we wrestle with this concept of eternity because all of us were going to a, a default destination. But when we gave our lives to Christ, he redeemed us and swapped our eternal punishment. So now, while we were destined for eternal separation, now we have eternal union. And I want to share a little light with you. According to the Gospel of John, eternal life doesn't start when you die. It starts when you're born again. Because the Bible says he who has the Son has life. Amen. So what that means is our spirit is born again and receives eternal life. It's not our flesh that's born again. We have to crucify this stuff. It's not our mind that's born again. We have to constantly renew our thoughts and, and, and subject ourselves to the Word of God. And when bad thoughts and old thought patterns and, and, and worldly ways creep up, we have to submit it to the Word of God. But it's our spirit that's been purchased and redeemed by the Lord. And so I want to jump into this and, and make sure that before we go any further, we realize there was a necessity for redemption because you and I were lost. This, my friends, is the urgency of evangelism. Because not only do you know somebody who died and go to hell, you will know more people. And it's your job and my job to do our part to not let that happen. Now, ultimately, the choice is theirs. But as our scripture, one of our passages said, how can they hear if somebody doesn't tell them? Amen. So, it's interesting. I watched a video the other day. It was a great illustration from a, from a, from a pastor named Ed Young, and he, he had a fishbowl. He had a fishbowl, a big goldfish bowl, and they had the camera zoomed up on it, and he took this goldfish out. He's talking about how this goldfish has to be in the right environment to be able to live. So they took this goldfish out of this bowl, and they laid it on the table beside the bowl. And the goldfish began to flip and flop and somersault and spin around and all of those things. And all of a sudden, it just began to get real slow. And the pastor said, this goldfish is dying. You could hear gasps all in the crowd. People were just screaming and hollering and everything. He scooped the goldfish up real quick. He put it back in the bowl, and the goldfish came back to life. And I love what he said after that. He says, some of you are more worried about that goldfish than you are your neighbor. Some of you are more worried about that goldfish than somebody spending an eternity separated from the presence of God. This is why you and I have the mandate of Matthew 28 and Mark 16 to preach the gospel to all creation. It is up to us to share our faith. But tonight, as we look in this doctrine of the salvation of man, uh, I spent a lot of time on my introduction. I just want to give you a couple of things. First of all, number one, we need to look at the need for salvation. 
the need. Recap, real quick. I don't want to spend a lot of time on this. Last week, we talked about Adam's fall. Because of one, man, one man's transgression, sin entered into the world. And so because of that, every person after the bloodline of Adam was born in a sinful state. Man died, disease entered the world, and, and man was eternally separated from God because of that willful transgression. We need to understand that mankind still has a need for salvation. We have a need for it. Listen, people, just being good is not enough. Just being good is not enough. Just being kind, just being polite, just being generous is not enough. Being baptized is not enough. You know, I've known people to get baptized because their mama wanted them to get baptized. I've known people get baptized because their wife or their husband nagged them to get baptized. But you know, if, if you're not saved when you get baptized, let me just tell you, you go down in the water a dry center and you come up a wet one. You just took a bath. You had a cleansing. But man needs salvation because we are eternally separated from God apart from the provision of the shed blood of Jesus Christ. We need it. Here's the here's second thing. We're going to spend a little time here. I want to look at the conditions of salvation. We know we're saved from something. We know we need to be saved, but how, how are we saved like we can't save ourselves well first of all man has to admit his need we have to come to the understanding that we need saving until a person gets to the place where they understand that apart from Christ they're lost you won't ever be able to reach them this is why listen the scripture is plain the goodness of God leads men to repentance. But we have interpreted that in the 21st century as this. Since it the, says the goodness of God leads men to repentance, then you should only teach about the good things. Don't teach about hell. Don't teach about holiness. Don't teach about those things. Because to the flesh, that's not good. You don't believe me? Churches across the land are full of nothing more than cotton candy motivational speeches full of people who come to church on Sunday, but they still club on Saturday, and they're not changed. I'm being honest with you. But until a man understands his condition, listen, you can walk into a doctor's office fine, emotionally, happy, happy-go-lucky, until you sit across from that doctor and he has some information you don't have. And that doctor says, uh, sir, ma'am, now note I'm speaking in a parable here. That doctor says, ma'am, sir, you got a problem. You got something pressing up against your spine or your brain or whatever, and, and it's, 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 it's bad. If we don't do anything... You have about four months to live. 
You better go home, kiss your family goodbye, and, and, and get your affairs in order and all of that. And you start getting upset and in your feelings. And then all of a sudden the doctor said, but if you're willing, there's a procedure that can save your life. It's risky. But we've had great success. And all of a sudden you are confronted with the fact that you're not all right. You need saving. It's the same way with salvation. If people are never confronted with the fact that without Christ they'll perish forever, then why would they ever have a need to turn to the Savior? You know what the goodness of God is? The goodness of God is is that there was an eternity that I was destined for that was eternal fire and damnation, but a God who loved me that I didn't even know before I was even born, stepped into humanity, lived a perfect life, and hung on a cross and paid the price for my sins so that now I don't have to go there. That's the goodness of God. Man, I'm telling you, we have to be thankful for the Lord. So the conditions of salvation is man has to admit his sinfulness. We got to make an admission. The second thing we got to do is we got to believe. Got to believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and that he rose from the dead. The third thing we got to do is you got to confess. This is all found in one passage, Romans chapter 10, verse 8, 9, and 10. Go, go turn over there with me. It says, what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth, and it's in your heart. That is the word of faith which we preach. Look at verse 9. But if we confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Look at verse 10. He says, For with the heart one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. So I want you to notice this. The Scripture tells us we're not saved because we we give enough. We're not saved because of who we're born into or what family we belong to. We're not saved because of uh, a membership application of a church where we wrote our name down on a roster or you were sprinkled as a baby in an Episcopalian or a Presbyterian or a Catholic church. None of those things bring salvation. Salvation only comes when we realize our need for a Savior. We believe in the sacrifice of God's Son and we confess Him as our Lord. A lot of people that think it's their works or things that they do, they live their life and they say, well, I just hope I'm good enough for God. You can never be. Never. None of us on our best day. Let me tell you something. Billy Graham, Mother Teresa, apart from Christ, not worthy to go to heaven. The thing that makes us worthy is when we trade our sin for his righteousness. It's the only thing. You say, well, Pastor, well, what about, what about doing good stuff and 
We're going to get to that in a minute, but I'm talking about conditions of salvation. It is confessing your need for a Savior and linking hands with the one who has the ability to save. I love the way 1 John reads the scripture. It says, if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus Christ, God's Son, cleanses us from all sin. If we walk in the light, if, as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another, and the blood of Jesus Christ, God's Son, cleanses us from all sin. What, what is the key to salvation? It is confessing Christ and walking with him in relationship. Not good works. Not good works. I don't want to get into the, the, the doctrine of, of whether or not tonight you, you, you believe eternal security or can you, I don't, I don't like the term lose salvation anyway. It's not biblical. I believe the scripture teaches apostasy. Uh, in other words, it's a willful knowing rejection of turning away. Um, I'm saying that tonight to say this. You're not in one day and out the next. Not over and over and over and over and over again. That's the way some people teach it. But let me tell you something. Um, I told somebody the other day about this same, same subject, and I said, you know, it's kind of like this. I said, you're either pregnant or you're not. You're not pregnant one day because you feel like you're pregnant, and you're not pregnant the next day because you don't feel like you're pregnant. You either are or you're not. You're not half pregnant and half not pregnant. Amen. It's the same way with salvation. You're either saved or you're not. There ain't no in-between. You either are or you're not. But the devil oftentimes lies to people and tries to get them to doubt the, the, uh, the uh, confidence that they have in the Lord. See, John, First John, you need to read that book. It's so wonderful when it comes to salvation. John writes and he says this. He says, I write these things unto you that you might know that you have eternal life. God don't want you, you don't know. I mean, yeah, it's okay to examine yourself. It's okay to, to check yourself if you're, if you're, you know, feel yourself straying away and you need to repent, come back to the Lord and those type of things. But I'm talking about this in and out and in and out. See, what happens is we begin to think about stuff like that. It's because we're basing salvation on our condition. And you can't do that. It's on his condition. Either Jesus was worthy enough or he wasn't. Either it paid for it or it did not. So that's the condition. Okay, let's look at the third thing. The third thing we will look at tonight is the evidence of salvation. You say, Pastor, how can, how can I know that I'm saved? How can I know a person is saved? You say, well, Pastor, we're not supposed to judge. Well, you know, people use that verse flippantly. It's not really what that means in the sense that people mean it to mean. People say, uh, you know, you hear people, you say, well, how come you don't go to church? They say, well, when I go to church, I feel judged. No, what you mean is you feel held accountable. It's a difference. It's a difference. Judging, looking down your nose and condemning is one thing. Saying you're a brother in Christ and I saw you at the club last night, we need to talk about that. That's not judging. Oh, it got quiet. But it's the truth, isn't it? 
If it was wrong to judge, Paul wouldn't have told them to put the man out of the church that wouldn't repent. I mean, hello. So, ultimately, there are some litmus tests that you can look at for yourself and for other people. I wouldn't call it judging as much as I would call it fruit inspecting. But the first thing you look at when it concerns salvation is this. Number one, you got to look at the evidence of a person's testimony. If somebody tells me they're saved, I always ask them if the conversation comes up. It doesn't always, but sometimes it does. I say, tell me about when you, how you got saved. Well, I don't really remember. Just all I know is I grew up in church. That, won't, that don't cut it. You would, you would be surprised how many people I hear with that same story. If you can't point me to an experience, then I'm not sure that I can point you to redemption. Because it always happens in a moment. You don't have to know the date, the time, or the, the, the second on the calendar, but you ought to be able to recount an experience where you gave your heart to Christ. Salvation is evidenced by a person's personal testimony. I don't know about you, but I can tell you where I was when I felt the full weight of my sin and I realized I needed a Savior. I can tell you where I was. Okay? Here's the second way. It's the inner witness of the Holy Spirit. The inner witness of the Holy Spirit. Romans 8, verse 16. Read this with me. This is a verse that people just need to know. But notice this. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. Read it again. The Spirit, the Holy Spirit, capitalized. The Holy Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. What does it mean to bear witness? It means to agree. To agree. One of the ways that God speaks to his children is through this way right here. The inner witness is what, what the old saints used to call it. The inner witness of the Holy Spirit. I was raised in the deep south of Arkansas, so let me just tell you the way my grandma used to say it. You just know that you know that you know. Have you ever heard it that way? You just know that you know that you know. People say, well, how do you know that you're saved? Because I know. The Holy Spirit bears witness with my spirit that I'm a child of God. Something has happened on the inside. It's not just the testimony of my lips. It is the inner witness of His Spirit living on the inside of us. All right? So, but here's, here's another way. Here's another way. Another way we can evidence salvation is fruit that results from change. Galatians chapter 5. Look at this. Verse 22 and 23. Paul's writing. He says, this is the, the scriptures about the fruits of the Spirit. He says, but the fruits of the Spirit. Is that verse up there? Okay, turn over there in your Bible and look. So he says, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, 
gentleness against such. There is no law. And he says, and those who are Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and its desires. So go back to, to verse 24, or I'm sorry, verse 22 rather. When Paul's writing about the fruit of the Spirit, he says, love, joy, peace, patience. The verses prior to that, it says, and the works of the flesh are these. Talks about revelry, backbiting, dissension, witchcraft, um, things of that nature. And so Paul lays out a comparison that if you're living the flesh life, this is what that produces. If you're living the spirit life, this is what this produces. Now, let me just say this. Uh, somebody asked me a question the other day, and, and um, it, was, it was just amazing how this thought came up, came up in my heart. And I'm sure I've heard it before, and I would give credit to whom credit's due, but I don't know where I heard it, but it's true. Because the question is, they said, Christians, when they get saved, can Christians still sin? Are they sinless? Because there are some people who go to an extreme. And they teach that Christians are sinless. And the Bible doesn't say that. In fact, the Bible explicitly says if you say you're without sin, you're a liar and the truth's not in you. Okay? That's written to believers. I mean, uh, believers can sin. Okay? So get this. If you're writing notes, write this down. Believers are not sinless. But, and underline that but there, but believers should sin less. When a believer sins, it should be out of an act of accident or frustration. It should not be out of living in sin. See, people say, I'm saved. I can drink. I'm saved. I can, I can, I can do whatever because, you know, the, the old way of saying it, and I, I know the difference now theologically. I struggled with this when I was younger, but people would make this statement. They would say, well, I'm, I'm a once saved and I'm always saved. Well, if that's your attitude towards living in what God hates, I can promise you you're not saved. Why? Because when you get saved, yeah, you're not perfect. Christ is perfect. Spiritually, we're perfect. But, I mean, in the flesh and the mind, we're not perfect. But guess what happens? When Christ comes in through the Holy Spirit at salvation, we begin producing the fruits of the Spirit. Now, when fruit start growing on a tree, they start little bitty. But guess what? They grow. And guess what? As long as we're alive, we're going to keep growing. The evidence of salvation in somebody's life is, has there been a change? If they were mean, are they a little less mean? Are they getting sweeter? If they were impatient, are they getting patient? Are they, are they developing kindness? And, and what that looks like in a person who is being developed in Christ is, you know, now that you're saved and, and you know, that the old flesh creeps back on you and, and you're, you're hot-tempered with somebody, now the Holy Spirit comes along and says, that's not, that's not Christ-like. And so you got to rewind the tape and go back and apologize and make rights wrongs. That's fruit, that's growth, that's the evidence of salvation. But notice now, we don't do those things to be saved. 
People say, what about good works, Pastor? What about, what about good works? Because there are some people that say, well, if I do this and I do that and I do this and I do that, then God will accept me. What about good works? Well, the thing is, is that Paul, in Ephesians, it was one of our texts, and I'm, I'm actually closing, but Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8, you know, that scripture says, For by grace have you been saved through faith, not of works. Uh, it is the gift of God, lest any man should boast. Then he goes on to say, For we've been created for good works in Christ Jesus. So what does that mean? I don't do good works to be saved. I do good works because I am saved. It's my nature. Because Christ lives in me, I want to help people. Because Christ lives in me, my heart has become more generous. Because Christ lives in me, I want to forgive. Now, it's a, it's a process, and we've got to keep working on it. And listen, I know some of you in here tonight, you think you got it all together. But what you don't know is the Lord has allowed me to see in the realm of the Spirit tonight. And your halo's looking real crooked. So all of us have some work to do. Right? So tonight, close your Bible. We're talking about the salvation of man. Let's recap this really, really fast. Number one, man had a need for salvation. And that need was because we were eternally separated from God. Number two, we, the conditions of salvation have to be met, which means man must admit his need for a Savior. He must put his faith and trust in the one who can save him and confess him as Lord. And number three, the evidence of that salvation is our personal testimony, the inner witness of the Holy Spirit, and the fruit that results from a changed life. Listen, tonight, I made a statement. Close your Bible. Stand on your feet. I want to pray for you.